Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Uh, If you will, just join me in a time of prayer before we get started in our study of God's Word. Father God, we rely on You. God, we have a large section of text. Father, I pray, Lord, that You will speak through my words and that hearts will be broken and that hard hearts will be shattered and that You will glorify Your name. Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I uh, thank you for the time off and for the rest uh, that was given to me uh, for the last couple of weeks. Um, I decided to live like Moses and go out into the wilderness, and so I went back to El Paso um, to spend some time out in the desert. Uh, it was refreshing, needless to say, um, but I will never live in El Paso, so <laughs> glad to be back. Allow allow me to introduce you to the modern Christian God. You will never meet anyone quieter or more soft-spoken if he chooses to speak at all. Sure, in the past he was a bit cranky, but he's changed a lot since then. He's a lot nicer now. He's really nice to people. He wants to get to know them and love them. He's altogether harmless toward those who disagree with him. A person may slander him, spit at him, spurn him, or scorn him, and he won't do anything about it. He's more happy-go-lucky than he is holy. He's too kind-hearted and gentle and gracious to take vengeance. In the end, he wins his praise by being gentle and kind and accepting. He makes no demands, tolerates anything, and he overlooks most things. The millennials believe in him because he's so chill and laid back. You'll never find a cooler God who allows us to drink coffee and live life like we want to. The middle-aged people like him because he gives them good things like paychecks and promotions. And the elderly like him because he comforts them in their impending death and he's building their favorite golf courses and hotels and fishing holes and donut shops. 
for them to enjoy forever. He gives grace to everyone and judges no one. He's altogether a tame and timid God. Tragically, this modern version, which many of us have at some point in time believed, falls far short of the God described in Scripture. A tame and timid God who judges no one and accepts everything. I think as we see in churches, in modern churches, one of the the lost essential doctrines about God is that God is not just the God of grace. He is the God of justice. He's a God who is holy. He is a God who judges as dangerous and terrifying as that thought is. He is a God who is to be reckoned with. Modern churches are presenting a God who is broken in half. A God whose nature has been sawn into. A God who is half God. God who is gracious, but God who is not just in His law and in His holiness. But I hope that by the end of our time in studying Exodus, we will see that as a church, if we're to present the one true God who is revealed in Scripture for people to be saved in reliance upon Him, in dependence upon Him, that it means that we must present a God who is holy, just, righteous, who takes vengeance for His namesake, but also a God who is gracious and loving and saves. These two things must come together. We must not saw them in two. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, God proclaims his own name. We like the first half, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, period. We love that part. But there's no period at the end of that. It says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The teaching of the Bible, particularly the teaching of Exodus, is that Yahweh receives glory through both redemption and retribution. Both redemption and retribution. He gets glory as he saves his people. And yet, he also gets glory as he judges Egypt. He gets glory as his people are spared from the plagues. And yet he gets glory as Egypt languishes and cries out and groans under the plagues. Later in Exodus, he receives glory as he forgives his people's idolatry. And yet he also receives glory as 3,000 calf worshippers lay slain in the desert. He gets glory from both. And as fearful and heart shaking as this is, is, it is the truth given to us by God's word. In this, every modern person needs to be warned. God will not just be glorified in your salvation. He may very well be glorified in your judgment. Do not assume. Do not assume that because God is a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, that that means that you automatically will receive God's glory and salvation. You must understand that God gets glory in judgment. God's judgment of the rebellious, the stiff-necked, the hard-hearted brings Him glory because it shows the world that He is Lord. Now, I think we're going to see this through the plagues. Now, we're going to, we're going to take all nine of the plagues. We're going to cut off the, the tenth plague because I feel like all these plagues leading up 
uh, to the Passover are important to look at, but the Passover deserves a sermon all on its own. So we're gonna we're gonna dive right in uh, to chapter seven and go all the way to chapter ten. It's a large section of section of text, um, so I just ask you to keep up with me. Uh, just to set the context, in Acts chapter five and six, Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and told him to let the people of Israel go according to the Lord's command. Now, what, how Pharaoh responded is of the utmost importance. He said in chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. He then increased his persecution. He took away the straw. Now the people of God have to make bricks without straw. And so in many ways, what we need to see is the plagues, the plagues are God's answer to Pharaoh's question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? In seven times, in seven different ways throughout these three chapters, chapter seven through 10, God makes it clear that these plagues are given so that Egypt, so that Israel, so that the whole world will know that Yahweh is God, so that the whole world will know that he is Lord, the plagues are meant to answer that question so that by the end of the plagues, no one will be asking, who is the Lord that I should obey him? The plagues answer that question. And so when we approach the plagues, we should we should ask, okay, what what exactly is God trying to teach his people here at this moment? Now, there's something important that we can't miss. As we get into these plagues, you'll see that I've, I've sectioned it off. We have the first part of chapter seven, which I believe, which is what uh, Kyle read. I believe that's the, the, the prologue to the plagues. And then we're going to get into the plagues themselves. Now, the prologue to the, the, to the plagues can be broken off into two sections themselves. We have God answering and revealing his pattern for the way the plagues are going to work. And then the next section shows us a practice run of how they're going to work. So let's look at the pattern. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, God lays out the pattern here. He begins by telling Moses, reminding Moses of his authority over Pharaoh. He says in verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. In essence, Moses' words are going to be God's words. Moses' work is going to be God's work. And so when Pharaoh rejects Moses' words, Moses' commands, Moses' signs, he's ultimately rejecting God. God's reminding him off the bat, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. That means when Moses stares down, when Pharaoh stares down Moses and arrogantly rejects what he's commanded to do, he's staring down God and daring God to go to war with him. So having reaffirmed Moses' authority, God says, you shall speak all that I command you, verse 2. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Here he lays out the pattern threefold. Number one, his command will be issued. Number two, a sign will be given. Signs are meant to prove the validity of the command. Command issued, a sign given. And third, Pharaoh's heart will be hardened. You're going to see this in all of the plagues. You're going to see a command. You're going to see a sign. And then you're going to see hardening. It follows this, this threefold plan. This is why I thought we could 
deal with all the plagues together in one sermon because it's showing the cycle of God's command, giving the sign and Pharaoh's disobedience in his hard heart. There is, however, one important detail in God laying out the, the, the pattern that we should not overlook. It's awkward. We don't like to read it. Um, I think many of us, if we were there when Moses was writing it, we would have edited it for him and told him to put something different. But there's this glaringly awkward statement that he says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, that's interesting. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? I think the Exodus looks at us bold in the face and says, yes. And, which we would think that's not an answer. Is it? It's what we would think it's one or the other. But Exodus says it's both. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. But why? If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign over hardened hearts, we must understand that it's because God has a purpose. God has a reason. And this is one of the awkward truths we as modern Christians don't like to hear. But God has a purpose just as much in judgment as he does in redemption. God has a purpose in raising up people, hardening their hearts and judging them just as much as he does breaking their hard heart and saving them. So what is God's purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart? I think he answers this in verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. When? When I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Do you hear that? How will the Egyptians know that God is Lord? Specifically, when he stretches out his hand against him, it'll be through judgment that he will glorify himself. It'll be through the hardening of Pharaoh's hearts that God will glorify himself to the people of Egypt and not just to Egypt, to Israel and not just to Israel, but the whole world. God will prove that he is a God worthy of glory, a God to be reckoned with. He is Lord through how not just salvation, but through judgment as well. He gives even more clarity in this in chapter 9, verses 15 through 17, which he says, For by now, he's speaking to Pharaoh, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Do you hear that? You find both God hardening Pharaoh, exalting Pharaoh, and Pharaoh exalting himself. On the one hand, God exalts Pharaoh for God exaltation in all the earth. And on the other hand, Pharaoh exalts himself for Pharaoh exaltation, for self-exaltation. And so we see that God has a purpose in Pharaoh's uh, in Pharaoh's hard heart, while at the same time Pharaoh rebell- rebelliously is doing it on his own. One is exalting Pharaoh for God's glory, and the other is exalting Pharaoh for Pharaoh's glory. Now, to be sure, God forces no one to sin. God doesn't even tempt people to sin. James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Yet I think what this is showing us is that sins and the rebellion and the hard-hearted of God's enemies work just as much in his plan and purposes as anything else does. Do you hear that? Because God is sovereign, and because Pharaoh's hard heart fits into God's plan, and not only that pushes forward his plan, 
God is receiving glory from all the earth. He does the same thing when he hardens the hearts of the Pharisees, when he hardens Pilate's heart, when he makes people who should undeniably see that Jesus is the Son of God nail him to the cross. And what happens? God gets glory. It fits into his purpose. It fits into his plan. My friends, this is hard, hard, hard teaching. God's not so nice anymore, is he? God's not so gentle anymore, is he? He's not that soft-spoken God that we thought in the introduction. He's not this God who just simply um, overlooks everything and judges nothing. He's a he's not a tame God. He's a God who ferociously works out things according to his own purpose because God cares deeply, deeply about his own glory. Why? Because he is God and to him be the glory. My friends, if this makes you feel awkward, if this makes you disappointed with God, let me promise you, your problem is not with God. Your problem is with your own understanding and expectations of God. We tend to have problems with this kind of doctrine because it, it God somehow fails to fit our expectations of him. He doesn't fit in our box. And that's exactly what Exodus wants you to see. He didn't fit in Pharaoh's box. He didn't fit in Moses' box. He will not fit in your box. God is a God of glory through both salvation and judgment. That's one solid truth. If the whole world were to harden its own heart against God and the whole world were to be forever damned, one thing is true, God will be glorified. If the whole world were to have their hard hearts broken and the whole world will be this, be saved, one thing is true. God will be glorified. That's the reality. His glory is not contingent on whether someone is saved or judged. His glory is going to come whether they're saved or judged. Now, I hope that enriches your uh, understanding of salvation. God didn't save you simply because he thought, I need glory, so I'm going to save them. God could have been glorified through your forever condemnation. He simply did it out of the kindness of his mercy and love. For which we have no understanding or reason. I mean, God, God's not contingent on you. I must be glorified and I need them. I need people to worship me. I need people to praise me. I mean, didn't Jesus say that if they, they don't cry out, the rocks themselves will cry out. God didn't need worshipers. God doesn't need glory through us, but God will have glory through us. I just think we ought to settle that question right then and there. That God is a God who judges and he is glorified through it. My friends... When we consider the sovereignty of God, we have to understand that God is sovereign over every blade of grass, every breeze that you feel, every hard heart that is out there. And ultimately, this dangerous, terrifying, frightening, loving, gentle, kind God is glorified. And ultimately will be glorified when Christ comes back to judge the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Willingly or unwillingly, they won't help it. Non-believers in the end, confessing Jesus is Lord. Why? Because they will see it at the judgment of Christ. In Egypt, it will be through judgment 
that God's name is to be proclaimed throughout all the earth, but to stir up hope for his people and to incite terror on their enemies. Egyptian gods will be defamed. The magicians will be defeated. The Egyptians will be broken. And in the end, Pharaoh himself will be hardened at the Red Sea, will be humbled at the Red Sea. And all this to prove that there is only one true God and he will reign forever and ever. Now let's look at the practice run. I think uh, chapter 7 verses 18 through 13 is more of a practice run than it is a plague. Number one, um, uh, maybe maybe you can think of it as a warning shot. Okay, let's think of it as a warning shot. Nobody's hurt. Nobody loses their property. No animals die except for the snakes that are swallowed. Um, uh, uh, nobody loses their life. Nobody immediately suffers from it. And so it's more of a warning shot. And God had just laid out the pattern, and now he's going to demonstrate that pattern through this uh, staff becoming a serpent. The pattern's seen clearly. First comes the command. Then the Lord said, or the Lord, you can also put the Lord commanded to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord commanded. So God issued his command and his servants obeyed. Next comes the sign. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and the sorcerers. Yes, there are sorcerers in the Bible. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Now in this practice run, God's providing this sign. Now when we think of the sign, if I were to ask you, when does the sign begin and end? Most of us would think that the sign is only the staff being turned into a serpent. Well, that's a great sign, right? But then you have the problem of the magicians doing the same. Either by demonic worship, uh, de- uh, de- demonic, that's right, demonic, I don't even know where that is. Dominican, maybe? I don't know. Demonic worship, or through some kind of trickery, they're able to replicate God's sign. But here's what's crazy about the Egyptian, the Egyptian magicians. They can replicate some of God's signs, but they cannot repel them. They can turn staffs into serpents, but then God's staff swallows up the serpents. They can turn water into blood, but they cannot turn the blood back into water. They can call frogs up from the Nile, but they can't send the multitudes of frogs back into the Nile. So they're able to replicate some of God's work to a smaller extent, if anything, making the plague worse. I mean, can you imagine um, being the magician that's holding Pharaoh's water bottle? Look, Pharaoh, we can do the same thing. And then Pharaoh going, you just turned my water into blood. And they can't turn it back. So if anything, they make the plague worse. They don't make it any better. They cannot repel God's word. His divine authority, God's divine authority will swallow up Pharaoh's pseudo-divine authority. He will swallow up the pseudo-authority of the Egyptian gods and will show that he is the all-consuming God who, who will judge Egypt and their gods. Finally, we have the hardening in verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them. As the Lord had spoken to Moses, the words as the Lord had spoken to Moses are insightful because it shows you that all things are falling into place according to God's will. This is God's will. This is God's revealed will. This is what he's going to do. 
All things happen according to the way that God calls the shots. It is a sovereign God who is working and willing for his own glory, both through Israel's redemption and Egypt's judgment. So we've laid out the pattern and you have it there in your notes. God gives his command, a sign is given, and then the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so we're just going to look briefly at each plague. Um, I cannot emphasize briefly enough. Um, I contemplated writing a sermon for each plague, and I just felt like that threefold cycle keeps going so we could deal with them all in one sermon. Um, so we'll get out probably about 1230, 1245. Um, but we're going to deal briefly with each one. I think it's also important that you understand that each plague is judgment on the gods of Egypt. Um, chapter 12, verse 12, talks about judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Um, but because Exodus 7 through 10 doesn't sp- explicitly name those gods, I'm not going to spend any time telling you which gods I think were being judged here. I mean, they, there's all kinds of speculation over which one. We can simply know that uh, the plagues are are like carpet bombing the the pantheon of gods in Egypt. I mean, it's just obliterating them. There's probably gods that we don't even know about that were obliterated in this carpet bombing of the plagues. So let's look at plague number one, water in the blood. The command was issued, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. Then comes the sign, by this you shall know. Now, anytime you see those words, by this you shall know, you know that a sign's being given. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow, will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The same God who spoke the Nile into existence is now the God who turns that Nile into blood. The Creator God who created all things good now uses His creation and His creative power as an act of judgment against those who rebel against him. The magicians did the same by their own secret arts. They turned water into blood. That's great. But they do not turn blood into water. Not one ounce of the Nile River was turned back into into drinking water. Not one ounce of the Nile was able to be used to quench thirst. They cannot repel. They may be able to replicate God's work, but they cannot repel God's word. What God has said has happened, and it is absolutely irreversible. Now, seeing that the magicians were able to replicate the sign, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. For seven full days, the Nile bled. Now on to plague number two, which is found in chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. The command was spoken, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Great, frogs. Um, I have a totophobia. I don't know if you guys do. They're gross. Next came the sign. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up upon the land. Once again... They're able to replicate, but they can do nothing to send the frogs home. They're stuck in the sovereignty of God. This time, you see Pharaoh kind of budging a little bit. He calls Moses in and says, will you plead to the Lord for us and send home the frogs? Well, Moses just one-ups Pharaoh. He says, sure, I'll send the frogs home, but you pick the time. Why did he do that? 
It was so that Pharaoh would know that God is Lord, that God is God. It is not by happenstance. It is not when Moses uh, sows out uh, frog repellent. It's not anything like that. It happens at the word of God, at the timing that Pharaoh sets. And so Pharaoh says tomorrow. Some translations say by the morning. We don't know why he didn't say now, but he just simply said by tomorrow. And then just as he had said, at the timing he had said, God's word was issued out and the frogs returned back to the Nile. But when Pharaoh saw in verse 15 that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Next came the plague of gnats or mosquitoes. <laughs> the time God, this is this time God only issued his command to Moses and Aaron. He doesn't speak anything to Pharaoh. He just tells Aaron to stretch out his staff. And to speak and, the, and strike the earth. And then the earth turns into the dust of Egypt, turns into gnats. And here we see the first signs of the magician's downfall. Listen to this, verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce the gnats, but they could not. That's interesting. But they could not. They even go so far to confess, this is the finger of God. Now, this is interesting. I, you know, again, I love the wording of the Bible. Why do they not say something like, this is the hand of God? Because to them, they're starting to get the picture here. These people who once thought that they could equal and square off with God, who once thought they, they were on par with God's power, are now beginning to see that they're not even equal to the power of his finger. You see this? Magicians squaring off. Yeah, we can turn staffs into serpents. We can turn water into blood. We can, we can bring up frogs from the Nile. Now all of a sudden they get the picture. We're not even as strong as God's little finger. It's a message. It's a sign. And you would think that Pharaoh's starting to get, okay, okay, now we're kind of dealing with a, with a God that's far more powerful. But no, that's not what happens. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This says God said he wouldn't. He doesn't listen. The fourth plague came in the form of flies. The command was issued, let my people go that they may serve me. The sign was given as swarms of flies covered the land of Egypt. This time, however, God drew a distinction between his people who lived in Goshen and between the Egyptians. And this is to serve as a sign for Pharaoh. He says in verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. Now, just a little subtle detail. Who's not there? The magicians. The magicians don't show up anywhere in this plague. Why? We have no idea. Maybe they're embarrassed. Maybe they've been beaten back for a period of time, realizing that they can't even wrangle with God's little finger. And so they don't show up in this plague. Pharaoh's overwhelmed by flies. Some of you in dead summer Texas know what that's like. Pharaoh tried in his overwhelming to negotiate. Worship in the land. You can, you can make your sacrifice in the land. It's almost as if Pharaoh's calling an early truce. Okay, I see where this is going. Let's just, just call a truce. Go worship in the land. But here's what's important. God doesn't call truces. He doesn't make ceasefires. God demands absolute surrender. The people who reject against God have no room to negotiate God's word. 
God will not negotiate with rebels. He's outright denied. And then in verse 32, after he had promised to let God's people go, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. In the fifth plague, God commanded again that Pharaoh let his people go, let Israel go. And the sign was given that he would strike all the livestock with a very severe plague. But he would make a distinction between Egypt and Israel. None of the livestock of Israel would be struck down. Uh, chapter 9, verse 7 says this, But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And so I just, just want you to put this picture together. Egypt's cattle completely dead. Israel's cattle still roaming. And this is showing Pharaoh again and again that God is God, not just of his people, but over Egypt as well. Next, God commanded Moses to throw handfuls of soot into the air. It's like he took ashes out of a kiln and he used to throw it up. And just to paint the picture, he throws it up and this big cloud of soot covers over Egypt and then it falls back down on the people and gives them boils. Now this sign is especially powerful and important because it shows the final humility of Pharaoh's sorcerers. Just, just remember, these are the same sorcerers that are called in and they just arrogantly toss down their staffs that become serpents. They take Pharaoh's water and they turn it into blood. They they call up frogs from the Nile. And then, and then by that sixth plague, they're not able to replicate it. Now look at what happens here in, this, in, in the sixth plague here. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The magicians who thought they can wrestle with God can't even stand in front of God's servant anymore. This is absolute pummeling of God. I promise you, friend, bow your chest up to God and you will be writhing on the ground. God is a holy God. He will not be mocked. The people who stand in arrogance will not even be able to stand. It's like God wipes them off their feet. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Isn't that what Hebrew says? A fearful thing. My friends, if this does not fit into your American democracy God, then you must realize that your American God must not line up with the God of the Bible. This is not a politically correct God. This is not a God who tolerates. This is not a God who negotiates. This is a God who is holy and will have no other bow bow their chest at him. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken. Verse 12. Now, in the seventh plague, God did something unique as he told Pharaoh that he could have killed all of Egypt. We've already read that uh, from chapter 9 here. Um, and, and basically, he said, I could have snapped my fingers, sent one pestilence, and you and all your people would have been dead. Just like that. It could have been into the matter, and my people could have just waltzed out. In fact, we might have even lived in Egypt. <laughs> but the reality is, is God has a purpose in it. God tells him that he's raised him up because he's going to make his glory known through Pharaoh's obstinate rebellion. God knows what he's doing here. God even forewarned a coming hailstorm, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Tells him, Pharaoh, the hailstorm is coming. 
and warns them even and says, whoever fears the word of the Lord, Egyptians, if you believe that God is actually sending this plague of hail, get all your servants, all your donkeys, all your camels, everything that is precious to you and bring it inside. This is God's tornado warning sign. He's blaring it. Get into shelter now. So word spread among the Egyptian people. And here's what we found out. Some listened and some didn't. Then whoever feared the, feared the word of the Lord, in verse 20, among the servants of Pharaoh hurried, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and, the lives, and his livestock in the field. The lesson is simple. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to fear the word of the Lord, to listen to his warning and commands. The same principle applies today. The gospel, the word of the Lord, clearly warns about sin and judgment, does it not? Clearly warns that there is a real God, a real God who is holy, a real God who will judge sin, a real God who in his holiness, in his justice, will separate forever from those who rebel against him. It even tells us what to do, where to take refuge in, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to Christ. It tells us that specifically. And what we find is whoever fears the word of the Lord will listen and believe and be saved from judgment. My friends, not one penny will be able to get you out of the judgment of God. Not one good work. Not one Sunday of church attendance. Not how many versions of the Bible are sitting on your shelf. The only way to escape the wrath of God is to fear the word of the Lord, to believe it. It's kind of like when mama shoots out her warning, you better believe it's more than a warning. It's a promise, right? It's the same way with God and the gospel. When he's given the gospel, it's not just warning people. It's a promise. God is coming back to save his people. God is coming back to judge the rebels. Any Egyptian who feared the word of the Lord was spared the plague, and any sinner who fears the word of the Lord, accepts it as true, will be spared and escape the judgment through Christ. Now, seeing the widespread of destruction in Egypt, Pharaoh spoke as if he was repenting. This time I have sinned. The Lord is right, and I and my people are in the wrong. It became clear, however, that Pharaoh wasn't really repenting. He wasn't really repenting. Even Moses said this in chapter 9, verse 29. But I know you and your people are not yet humbled, are not yet broken down. Why? Because true repentance comes with real obedience. Pharaoh speaks. He says, yes, I've sinned. But does he let the people go? No. My friends, there's a lot of people among us who speak as if they're repentant. Yes, I've done wrong. Yes, I've committed sin. Yes, I shouldn't have done that. But then we continue in our acts of rebellion again and again and again. Do not think that you are repentant just because your words are repentant. True repentance comes with real active obedience. Real repentance for Pharaoh wouldn't have just been, I have sinned. It would have been, I have sinned. And now I know God is Lord. I will let the people go. That's real repentance. His words sound repentant, but his actions are still rebellious. 
And as soon as there was relief, as soon as the hell went away, his hard, hard heart washed away his repentant words. Before sending the eighth plague, God revealed to his people in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, that he had hardened Pharaoh's hearts and the hearts of his servants so that you, Israel, may know that I am Lord. From For all generations, Israel would be talking about what God did to Egypt. It would be both a warning, don't rebel against God like the Egyptians did, but also a hope, look at what God does to those who reject him. The command was issued in verse 3. Chapter 10, let my people go. Pharaoh's servants now. Now you see the gradual breaking of Egypt. Pharaoh's servants now. Come and beg, bleed with Pharaoh. Let Israel go. Why should they keep being a stumbling block to us? We are undone. Let them go. So magicians, broken. Servants of Pharaoh, broken. Next will be Pharaoh. God is gradually breaking the authorities in Egypt. Now Pharaoh again tries to negotiate. And he wants to know who exactly will go. Will it include the little ones, the children? Will it include everyone? And Moses says, absolutely, it will, it will reclu- uh, include everyone. Not one person, not one hoof. No one will be left behind in the Exodus. And to that, Pharaoh angrily spit, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. That's ironic. The Lord be with you. You know why? Because the Lord was with his people. And Pharaoh indeed would let the people of Israel go. The Lord be with you. And I can just see Moses going, yeah, you're right. (laughs) I hope you remember that. Lord be with you. So the locusts were sent and they ate everything that the hailstorm left behind. And Pharaoh again feigned repentance. I've sinned. I should let them go. And again, God graciously swept the locusts away. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 20, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Again, listen carefully. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart at that point? The Lord. Why? Because the Lord is demonstrating to all the earth who he is. He's demonstrating to all the earth who he is. We come now to the final plague before the Passover. God commanded that Moses stretch out his hand toward heaven. And then darkness would cover the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. The God who spoke light into existence now puts it out in Egypt. Only in Goshen, where the people of God were, did the light shine. Again, this being a sign to Pharaoh. And yet again, after trying to bargain, Pharaoh is hardened. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he would not let them go. Verse 27, chapter 10. Pharaoh even went so far to threaten Moses, the representative of God. If he ever showed his face around here again, Moses would die. Now, we've just taken a very brief, very fast look at nine plagues. There have been people who've preached sermons on each plague, and I very well could have uh, preached a sermon on each plague. But one of the things I think the plagues want us to see is to see that God is working in this cycle to show himself, who to show the world that he is God, that he alone is God. So I think it's worth asking, after looking at these nine plagues, what do we learn? What lessons do the plagues teach us? I think he gives us three lessons. I think there's way more lessons, by the way, and I'd encourage you to go home, reread them, and to write down your own lessons. But here are three that I saw. God is completely sovereign. God is completely sovereign. My friends, I don't know how you can read the Bible 
and not see that God is completely sovereign. 100% sovereign. Loving, absolutely. Not willing that any should perish, absolutely. Sovereign still. He is a complicated God. By the way, He is God. We're complicated people, right? How much more is our Creator complex in His nature? We shouldn't ever think that we understand perfectly who God is. But one thing we should know, God is sovereign. We shouldn't ever claim to know the outworkings of how sovereignty and sin and grace and sovereignty work together. We just don't know. We just know that man is responsible for sin and God is sovereign over the outcome. God is sovereign in his plan. God uses it according to his purposes. He's sovereign over the Nile, sovereign over the dust. Sovereign over the frogs, sovereign over the the locusts, sovereign over Egypt, sovereign over Israel, and even sovereign over Pharaoh's individually sinful heart. And my friends, he is sovereign over you. He is sovereign over you. He does not share glory with anyone. He does not share sovereignty with anyone Moses says to Pharaoh, the earth is the Lord's. Which includes who? Pharaoh. My friends, that can either be your greatest comfort. Or, if you're in rebellion against God, it can be your greatest terror. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a sovereign God. A fearful thing. My friends, I am not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. I've not been that in, in, I, I don't know, I, I, but I do, I do understand this. You can, you can imbalance your view of God. Either he becomes so judgmental that he doesn't give grace to anyone, or you can become, he can seem as so gracious that he judges no one. And my friends, if we're going to believe in the God of the Bible, we have to look his justice square in the face and say, yes, he is holy. We have to accept it. Sovereign. Yes, he is sovereign. I think it also should show us what hope we have in reaching our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends. You know many people who might be hardened toward the gospel or hardened to the idea of God. Who's sovereign over hard hearts? God. So who should you go to to break hard hearts? God. My friends, sometimes we have a view of evangelism that thinks that we can bring a jackhammer and break hard hearts. In reality, true evangelism is mingled with prayer for God to do what only God can do. Share the message, absolutely. Share the gospel. Seek to bring it to the heart. But I don't think you will ever find evangelism in the Bible done without people praying, God, work here. Break hard ground. Split stone. Give them a heart of flesh and not just a hard, nasty, stony heart anymore. My friends, the problem with our evangelism is not that we believe in a sovereign God. A lot of people are fearful that if you believe in a sovereign God, then it will damage your evangelism. My friends, I went all the way to China to be a missionary, to preach the gospel. Why? Because I knew that if I went in prayer, I was going and praying for people and sharing the gospel to a God who only can can break hardened hearts. 
If your evangelism is not being effective, maybe it's because we're not praying to the one. Maybe we're trying in our own strength. If people aren't listening, maybe it's because we're not mentioning them by name before the holy God of the universe, who alone can change their heart. My friends, don't overestimate what you can do in evangelism. For sure, don't underestimate the gospel, but don't overestimate your skill in bringing hard hearts to the Lord. Pray, depend, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, whose hand can crack hard hearts. Second, the plagues teach us that God does not negotiate his commands. He does not call truces or ceasefires. He does not bargain or deal. As the Lord of all, he demands complete and absolute surrender and obedience. Whoever fears the word of the Lord will escape judgment. Whoever doesn't will be judged. Those who ignore or reject his word will receive condemnation from God. No Egyptian who stood in that field that day that the hell, the hell came survived. No one. They either listened to the Lord and took cover or they died in the field. My friends, the gospel it's painfully clear. Listen to the word of the Lord or be separated from him forever. Receive peace and forgiveness and justice at the feet of Christ or find it nowhere else. Because you will not find it anywhere else. You either bear your own judgment and guilt before God or you allow Christ to bear it for you. God does not negotiate. No one on the great day will stand before God and say, but I was a really good person, so I met you halfway. It doesn't work like that. Absolute surrender to Christ is the only thing that stays judgment. It's interesting that as you read through the Bible, you get to Revelation 16 eventually. And these very same plagues are poured out on those who ultimately reject Jesus. Ultimately rejecting. You look at Revelation 16. It's the last day. It's the bold judgments. God pours out plagues of sores. Turns, uh, turns the seas and, and rivers into blood. Plunges the kingdom of the world into darkness. You even see frogs and thunder in the judgments. From Exodus to Revelation, the Bible wants you to understand God is mighty, holy, sovereign, and just. If we rejected the Egyptians for rejecting his word, he will reject any who reject his son. God will receive glory and those who sow, sow rebellion against God will receive retribution. Galatians chapter 6. We as Christians believe there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that is absolutely true. But do not think that that applies to anyone who is outside of Christ. There's now no condemnation. Specifically where? In Christ. Not outside of Christ. In Christ. In Jesus. In faith. That is where there's no condemnation. Paul even goes so far in Galatians 6, 7. But do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one shows that will he reap. My friends, if you sow rebellion, you will reap retribution. God is a God who will not be mocked. He is a God who is glorified through justice. Now, 
We could end the sermon there, right? But I think if we ended the sermon there, we'd still have an imbalanced view of God because my whole goal in this sermon is to push us out of the pit that says that God's only grace and never just. And now I've sent us careening towards the other pit now, that God's just. And so there's lots of quizzical faces like, okay, now tell me when you're going to get to the good news. Well, that's great, because the plagues compel us to consider Christ. The statement that this whole sermon is trying to prove is God is glorified through judgment. And I'm going to now tell you why that's a good thing. It's a hard truth to swallow, but you want it to be true. Why do you want it to be true? Because just as God received glory when he poured out judgment on the Egyptians, God received glory when he poured out his plague of wrath on your Savior. If God is not glorified through judgment, then God is not glorified at the cross. If God's not glorified at the cross, then the cross means nothing. You want God to be glorified in judgment. If you don't, then you do not want the cross. Because that is what happens at the cross. God poured out plagues on Egypt and the whole earth realized that God is Lord. God poured out judgment at the cross and the whole earth is told there's reconciliation with God. My plague, my plague, my pestilence. Because of my sin, he took. He was plagued so that I could have peace. He became my propitiation, took my plague, took my place. I stood as Pharaoh. He became Pharaoh for me so that I might become a son of God. My friends, he died for your sin on the cross. Those plagues that Egypt felt was nothing compared to the separation from God, his father, that he felt that day. And the weight of sin. You talk about just immense weightiness of gnats and boils and water and the blood. And just how amazing and terrifying it is. Now take judgment of all sin and place it squarely on Christ's shoulders. The plagues are pale in comparison to the powerful wrath of God. Poured out fully, not partially, Fully on Jesus. Legs are called the cup that God pours out, right? You see it all through the prophets. You see it in the bold judgments where God pours out judgment. And Jesus, seeing that cup, says, Lord, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But if not, your will be done. And those same plagues that God pours out over all the rebellious earth, Christ drank in full down to the dregs. My friends, you read the plagues, and if you read it with Christ-centered glasses, you don't walk away hating the God who is just. You walk away loving the God who showed his justice in Christ. Praise God, he is the God who glorifies himself through judgment so that we may know that he is Lord. My friends, there are some of you in here today, I know that you had family members that have rejected the Lord. You may have a best friend who you might even believe died in rejection against the Lord. And this message is painful to us. I had a grandfather. I don't know if he believed in Jesus or not. To, my, to the day that he died, I, I never, never, ever heard him speak about Jesus. 
Never heard him talk nice about God or anything like that. Never heard him express faith in Christ. So he just really didn't want to ever talk about it. And so I'm someone who stands in the ranks with you who hurt at the message that God is glorified in judgment. But this is a good time for us just to pray the peace of Christ over you. Yes, God is glorified. And in the end, he will wipe away every tear, every sadness, do away with all pain and death, and everything that is cursed and plagued will be no more. And we'll have perfect peace with Christ. So if you want to talk with someone today, I, I would just ask that our elders go to the back. Um, take take your wife with you uh, so that we can pray for you. Uh, we, we want you to come to the back and pray with us if you have any questions. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe it's just been a hard time and you feel like you're under the wrath of God and you just need to hear the gospel because there is no wrath of God for those who are saved. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Maybe you just need prayer so you can reorient yourself. You are not, God makes a distinction. He doesn't plague his people. He prunes his people, but he doesn't plague his people. And maybe you just need that hope today. So I'm going to pray. And if you want to move and pray with us, we would invite you to do that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy and for your justice. Thank you that you've poured out your justice and wrath on Christ so that we might have peace with you. Lord, help us to love the gospel and who you are fully. Father, you are a God who is gracious, slow to anger, who will forgive iniquity, but God, you are still the God who will by no means clear the guilty. And we praise you that that grace and wrath that forgiveness and justice, that that mercy, Father, and that separation from you merged together in Christ on the cross so that we may be reconciled. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.